Welcome to See the Change podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Ayala, Communications Director at Sea Change Initiative. This is a space to bring together community builders and change makers to hear the stories and inspire them to take action for social change. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to hit subscribe and connect with us online. Today, you'll hear from Mayumi Sato, a social policy researcher who has been involved in policy revisions around anti-racism, gender equity, environmental justice, and refugees. In this episode, we talk about her experiences in academia, who she drew inspiration from, and how her work in Thailand forced her to see humanitarian work in a different light. Let's dive in. Hi, Mayumi. Thanks so much for joining me on See the Change podcast. We were introduced through one of my colleagues and very curious to learn more about your academic background and the research that you do. Um, can you give us a little bit of your background, um, maybe like where you grew up and, and what led you to the, what the roles that you're in and the studies that you undertook? Sure. Thanks. Thanks so much. Tanya for, for having me. Um, yeah, just to start off. Um, so my name is Mayumi um, and I grew up in Japan or mostly my childhood. Sorry, I was born in Japan, but then I grew up in North America. Um, so I moved to the U.S. when I was quite young and then uh, lived in Canada for a few years. And then I moved back to the U.S. and then moved back to Canada. Uh, and then, you know, I finished my undergraduate studies there. Uh, then I moved to Thailand for work and now uh, where I just completed my postgraduate studies. Uh, so as I mentioned, I first did my undergraduate studies in, at McGill University in Canada, and that is you know, how uh, I am aware of our mutual contact, Megan, um, and I was studying geography um, at McGill. And uh, in my postgraduate studies, I recently finished my master's in sociology at Cambridge. So I'm, I'm based in the UK right now. I'm still in Cambridge. And, you know, as, as with a lot of other people, I'm currently working remotely on, on a few projects. So mostly related to environmental and social issues. Okay, really interesting. And when you decided to study at McGill, what drew you to that program to geography? Um, yeah, I, I, what I really like about geography is the discipline was how interdisciplinary it is, right? It's very, um, I mean, it can cover from the physical to the human to post-colonial geography. And so I think especially um, being like 18 years old and not really having a, a robust understanding of like what I wanted to do in my life, like it kind of opened up the pathways of giving me a, like a very multifaceted perspective of the world. And I think as I grew older and I took more critical perspectives on what the discipline means, I started veering off into like more specific understandings of what geographies I'm interested in. And so that mostly became, you know, the critical side, um, critical geographies and understanding post-colonial geographies, anti-racist geographies. So that's kind of where my um, focus in my undergrad sort of led me towards the last two years. Okay, that's really interesting. And I'm curious to know, when you talk about the focus that you ended up um, taking in your geography studies, did you grow up in an environment where anti-racism or post-colonial topics were part of the dinner conversation? Or was this something that you kind of discovered along the way at McGill? I would say it definitely wasn't a household conversation. I mean, my 
my house is hold I mean it's just myself and my mom and my sister and so and we don't speak English at home so I wouldn't say that this kind of discourse um, was prevalent in the household but I think what's interesting about McGill was you know of course I ended up veering towards this path in the final last two years of my studies. It wasn't really informed by the classes I took at all. It really was informed by the kind of activism that I saw on campus and the friends and and classmates around me. And so I think that was probably the most influential part of attending McGill, Um, especially, you know, if you, you know, if you go to McGill, there's always this discussion around, you know, the Palestinian human rights and, and you know, these anti-austerity movements around, you know, tuition increases. And so that really impacted me a lot and um, helped shape my view that I have today. Uh, and that's definitely how I started, you know, when my undergraduate dissertation thesis looked at, like, solidarity movements between Black Lives Matter and Palestinian protests. And, like, that definitely was informed more from the extracurricular environment more than it was from the kinds of things I was learning in my classes. Okay, awesome. And while you were studying and discovering those extracurriculars, um, you mentioned, you know, connecting with other students that were like-minded in those fields. Uh, Was there, you know, are there particular people that inspired you while you were at McGill? Mm, Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's the beauty of actually attending a university in Montreal is that, you know, you don't have to confine yourself only to the university itself. And so a lot of the events or conferences or activities that I was a part of um, was also, you know, involved with Concordia University, the other university, uh, English university in Montreal. And so I remember seeing Norman Finkelstein speak um, I heard Nora Erekat speak. Um, and these, of course, are very like um, incredibly supportive of, of the Palestinian human rights movement, and I think that was really influential for me. Yeah, it didn't necessarily mean that they they're scholars that came from McGill itself. I will say um, there's one professor who I took a course with. Her name is uh, Professor Cho, Michelle Cho, and for me, it was the first time that I ever saw. Uh, Um, not only just a woman of color, which we know is like, you know, very underrepresented in academia, but to see another like East Asian woman in this academic space, that was really life changing for me, because as somebody who, you know, potentially might see a career in academia, I was really lacking that kind of mentorship. And for her to guide me and um, also have the same mentor me in the same like ideological fashion, like for me, that was quite enlightening. And yeah, I think that was probably definitely the turning point for me at McGill, where I started thinking that, okay, that it is possible to be, you know, a East Asian woman and still try to pursue a career in academia. And I think that that's something that I'd like to do because of that experience itself. Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good point. Um, in terms of the underrepresentation of women of, of color in in academia. And I saw that once you graduated, you really didn't waste any time in getting into the field and putting your um, your learnings into practice. Um, you traveled to Thailand after McGill to work with refugees and migrants. And to be honest, I wasn't uh, particularly familiar with the situation um, occurring in, in Thailand. Can you give us some context about uh, the conflict that was taking place? Sure. Um, and to be honest, I also did not know of the specific conflict before I moved there as well. 
So I moved to Thailand through a program called Princeton in Asia. It's a, it's a fellowship that places recent uh, undergraduates um, to work in uh, several countries in Asia. And I was lucky enough to have participated in the fellowship. And so I was able to work with two organizations, one in Chiang Mai and one in Bangkok. Um, and I mean, I think when most people think about uh, this kind of regional conflict, immediately they might be drawn to the kind of conflict that they're aware of in Myanmar, which is often uh, around the Rohingya people. But, you know, I think that this is not the only civil conflict or civil war that exists in that country. You know, there's so many different uh, ethnic minority groups in Myanmar that are ostracized, they're marginalized, and they live on lands that have um, extremely uh, rich resource, natural resources. And so for that reason, there's a lot of conflict between these uh, ethnic groups and also the Myanmar government over who's to um, access and manage these resources. And so where I was in Chiang Mai, it was right along the border between Thailand and Myanmar. Uh, there is a huge population of Shan people. So they come from Shan state in Myanmar. And they too are also fighting for their self-determination and they have been fighting for that for a long time now. But um, this is highly under-recognized, you know, in scholarship and in human rights news and um, just in general mainstream um, public consciousness as well. And so a lot of the Shan refugees and, and migrant workers that live in Thailand, you're, they're you know, neither accepted by their home country in Myanmar, and nor are they accepted in Thailand. You know, a lot of them are, are you know, under-resourced. They don't have the same educational opportunities. They don't have the same health access. Um, their livelihoods are typically contingent upon like very low wage um, kind of salaries. And of course, oftentimes that might be associated with precarious labor. And so, I mean, these are all very compounding factors that further marginalize them already than what they, you know, already kind of experienced when they were living in Shan State and they were suffering under this um, government rule um, and civil conflict. So, yeah, this is something that isn't really known to a lot of people and myself included. I, I learned a lot just from being in the field. Um, but that is, you know, one of the main major conflicts that exist in, in this area as well. Um, and there are already so many issues in northern Thailand of statelessness, um, not just amongst Shan people who live in Thailand, but also amongst um, indigenous people who live in the highlands who have been living there for as long as they've been there, which is, you know, obviously them being indigenous, this is their land, but um, they also don't have the same entitlements as like a Thai citizen. So, you know, there are several issues that exist in, in this region, but just aren't really recognized or, you know, known to public attention, especially in the, in the global north. Okay, that's, um, that's quite uh, enlightening to, to hear about that, because like you said, it's uh, really underreported. Um, I don't think I've really seen anything about it in um, mainstream media, uh, where, I mean, there isn't a ton of news about global conflicts, um, especially nowadays, uh, but certainly not about the situation in, in Thailand. Um, and in this, through this program, Princeton in Asia, um, did you get to choose where you went or was it, you know, selected for you? Um, was, did you ever have like a, a particular interest in going to Thailand or did you just kind of see where you ended up? 
Um, so you do have the option to um, ex express your preference of country. Um, I knew for me, like because I had lived in Japan, I didn't really want to go there. And um, I also just wanted somewhere completely new. Um, so originally I was thinking you know, East Timor because in, in school I had taken a course and I'd learned a lot about the kind of first Portuguese colonization of East Timor and then Indonesian occupation of East Timor. And I was really interested in um, kind of pursuing this human rights work and, and post-conflict reconciliation. Um, but then eventually just from the way that the, the kind of screening system worked and and just the conversations I had with the program directors during my interviews um, yeah just Thailand the match between the organization's needs and then what I had experienced doing um, seemed more of like a better fit uh, and in the end I'm, I'm so glad I moved uh, to Thailand because I you know was there for two and a half years I learned the language I, I didn't speak a word when I got there and I think it just gave me so much opportunity to not just learn about Thailand, but the rest of Southeast Asia. So yeah, I would say. Okay. And what, what was your day-to-day -day work? What, what did that look like while you were there? Um, so I, I had two different organizations that I was working with in Thailand. Um, so the first was with an organization in Chiang Mai called the Life Skills Development Foundation. And they are very local Thai NGO. And so, you know, the, the responsibilities really fluctuated because it is a small office. Sometimes that, that involved going to the field and sometimes that involved, you know, being stationed in Chiang Mai for grant writing or proposal uh, writing or, you know, writing your, your project outcomes and reporting for donors. Um, but for the second job, it was quite different because even though I was based in Bangkok, um, for the Center for People in Forests at Recoft. Um, it was actually a regional NGO. Uh, it's an environmental and forestry NGO. So I actually ended up being mostly um, associated with the Lao office, Lao PDR. Um, and I worked with the Lao colleagues most uh, focusing on, on my research, um, looking at the social and gendered consequences of um, reforestation policies um, and policies that respond to illegal logging of timber. So um, yeah, I would say it's it's quite varied in terms of like what I did um, on a day-to-day -day basis. It's it's definitely not the same as, you know, what I'm doing now where it's comfortably, I know that if I have a meeting, uh, well, of course, every, it's going to be online right now. But when I was in Asia, you know, you could be told that you have to go into the field in four days and you just have to be flexible and adapt to the situation. Um, and you can't really create like a structured uh, calendar uh, around your life. You know, you have to navigate around these circumstances. If there is a need for you to be in the field, then, then you have to adjust as well. So I think that was, um, it's quite hard to like encapsulate what I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Some of it, especially in the last year and a half, was mostly focused on research, but um, research through like a participatory action research. So I, I wasn't just there collecting data and then going back. I was, you know, I went to Laos several times um, to sort of co-collect and co-develop this research, looking at like social and gendered inclusion uh, and exclusion also within um, small and medium enterprises that are affected by by um, these policies, these environmental policies. Sorry, I'm not sure if that answers your question. <laughs> no, it certainly does. Um, and 
you know, with your, with your work being so varied in terms of field work and research, was that something that you expected going into it or was it completely different than what you, what you had in mind? Uh, it was definitely different. I remember when I took development geography courses, you know, I had the certain image of what development work looks like. You know, you it's oftentimes very romanticized. Um, you believe that every second of the day you're going to have something, you're always going to be moving and, and, you know, working in the community. And that's not always the case. And you know, that's also very much justified, right? Because if you don't have the local languages or the capacities and, you know, why why is somebody from the global north getting paid, you know, X amount times more than a local staff to carry out something that they don't actually know anything about? And so I think there are some interesting, like, power dynamics between uh, who is doing what, especially in the development and human rights sector. Um, I would say, like, I didn't expect to realize that, but it was so salient when I got there. You know, just the difference between, you know, working in this local Thai NGO, my first workplace, and then seeing the way that they had to respond and react with donors. Um, it was quite, in my opinion, like hierarchical and very like top down and top of, in terms of like how donors kind of treat your project, right? They see you as like a beneficiary. So you have to report these outcomes. And, you know, for me, it was, I kind of got disillusioned with the whole nature of like reporting and, and monitoring what are the actual outcomes. You know, it, I found it to be very rigid. Um, and, and like perfunctory in some ways because you're given you know a certain amount of time to report what's happening in the field and you know that's not really how you can assess change you can't just assume that change is going to happen um, at a at a very like natural rate at the same pace every three months and so def that definitely <laughs> shifted my opinion of development work um, so I think when I what I expected to encounter I thought it was going to be more you know, the kind of image that we have when we think of these UN um, operations. But, you know, of course, that was me being very narrow minded and um, just very young, I think. Um, and definitely that's changed since, you know, really being put in the field and also, you know, working in, in headquarters, you know, what the nature of, of the development sector actually looks like. And going back to that time of you know, experiencing what the development field is really like and becoming disillusioned with that traditional um, method. What would be something that you would like to see change in? How do you feel it could improve? Mm. Um, well, for one, I think fundamentally, I mean, again, I don't, I'm not saying that I am like, supporting I think my thoughts on capitalism I'm also like very uneasy with as well but I think for one you can just see the blatant pay differential between somebody who is uh, local staff and those who are coming from the global north who yes may have been trained at Oxford or Yale or whatever but you know they don't speak the local language and I mean when it comes to understanding the local landscape, they definitely know less than the the regional or local staff. And I think that that is um, obviously a, a big issue. But then on top of that, you know, it's an issue because um, in terms of how decision making happens and, 
and how power is delegated to particular individuals is typically in the hands of, uh, again, people from the global north. And I think that that has to change. I think we associate so much of knowledge, quote unquote, and like expertise with being associated with your formal education. And I, and I think that, you know, especially now having witnessed you know, all the different forms of knowledge production and like meaning making that, you know, it, we shouldn't really be so fixated on these titles, you know, when it comes to uh, development work. And, and I mean, this is beyond development work as well. You know, there's, I think we should be prioritizing local knowledge first. I mean, they actually understand the situation better than anyone else. Um, and I think that that's a huge power dynamic reconciled within you know, humanitarian and like the aid sector. Um, I do think that even though I was in Asia, it's heavily dominated, at least the people in positions of power, whether that's, you know, the UN offices, the regional offices, or either at these international NGOs, typically they're white European uh, men. And, you know, again, it's this is kind of reinforcing all the different structural inequalities that exist in our society. But, you know, you know, when you have a lack of diverse perspectives, trying to impose a solution for human rights abuses, I mean, you're, you're only going to get a very small amount or small, um, uh, few solutions for how to, um, yeah, like improve or, or develop society. And so I think that's kind of, um, a frustration that exists within the development sector and should be reshifted to prioritize the expertise and knowledge of, of local and um, indigenous communities first. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's been many more conversations had about diversifying, I mean, essentially every field and every industry mm -hmm. because it does source completely different solutions that could be more effective. And um, even if they lie outside of traditional academia, like you mentioned. And do you feel that when people from the global north arrive in these um, locations and approach these, these situations, is there enough of a cultural education or a sense of really immersing themselves to learn from the local people or is the mindset maybe a bit more um, centered on what they feel is the right policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I also think, you know, I, I clearly am a part of this problem myself, right? The fact that I can move to Thailand as a 22-year-old, you know, in this fellowship, as, as grateful I am for this experience, I recognize that that came because I have a certain passport privilege. I think um, yeah, whether or not you decide to really adapt and understand the local perspective that's contingent on the individual, I don't think that like institutionally the structures are there to, you know, train or sensitize employees to kind of build that cross-cultural understanding themselves. I think just, I mean, power dynamics are inevitable in any space that you operate in, but I think the the willingness to mitigate them is definitely very depending on the organization and the, the culture of the organization. Um, I think what I've noticed, especially now working, going back to work now, um, because I've, I've graduated my, from my master's, is that, you know, when you do work in a very diverse setting where, um, 
typically everybody is a bit well, right now I'm working in a very young uh, work environment. And I think because we all have the same sort of literacy around social justice and anti-oppression, there's more focus on like creating more opportunities of access for those who are marginalized. And I don't feel like that kind of um, ethos was practiced at my former workplaces. And I mean, I, I don't want to attribute that to just a generational thing, but I do think that, um, you know, it really changes, right? If you if the culture of your workplace is willing to name all of these different, you know, structural isms as a as a problem, then you're gonna try to actively um, intervene and give people who have been historically, um, yeah, marginalized and, and excluded in society a space to to lead. But I mean, that really depends, I think, on the the people in power and the the people or the willingness of them to sort of share opportunities with others. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, you're a young woman entering this field and there is um, a privilege to that. Uh, But did you ever face challenges in making space for yourself on these teams or on these projects? Definitely. Yeah, I think that was probably one of the biggest frustrations, actually. I I felt... um, yeah, I felt times that, you know, you're, that you were kind of belittled, or I felt like I was quite belittled. Uh, maybe it's just, I'm not sure what particular part of my positionality may have led to this, but I think, you know, oftentimes I was seen as like not really knowledgeable enough to help um, with like developing programmatic work with like significant responsibilities. You know, maybe I was put into a meeting as like a young person to act as like a, a representative of like a young voice, but that doesn't, you know, really translate to anything if you're not actually given any time to speak. Uh, and, and so, you know, sometimes when the organization or the culture of the organization doesn't allow you to be, to express dissent or be innovative, you know, I had to find other ways of expressing this and voicing my opinions. And that actually led to me, you know, attending different international conferences and, that helped a lot in terms of, you know, speaking to people from different environments, different countries, and young people particularly, who have experienced the same problem, you know, and, and I think that that's something that I've grappled with a lot, you know, I, I do believe that some experiences at my, my workplace, but also within the sector, and also within academia, you know, I have been marginalized, not just because of my age, but also you know, for my race, um, maybe my socioeconomic status. And um, yeah, I think that that's something that, you know, is not really um, considered a lot or it's just in general, like making space. That is something that the individual, you know, that's placed on the onus of the, sorry, the onus is placed on the individual to make that space rather than, you know, the institution giving you that space to have some kind of agency and and power. so that, yeah, I definitely struggled with this um, while I w- was working. But I do think that um, as I get older and, you know, obviously I've acquired another degree since then, I'm, you know, I think that I will, I recognize that I will be put into positions of power. And I just hope that I don't forget that kind of ostracization and the marginalization that I experienced when I was younger, because I know that, you know, it's that level of, you know, indifference and myopia that that leads to these structural um, systemic injustices being upheld over time. So, 
Yeah, I would. I think this is obviously a very critical question that we have to keep in mind as we, you know, delve deeper into our professional lives. Thanks for listening to See the Change podcast. This has been a Sea Change Initiative production, written, edited, and produced by myself, Tanya Ayala, music by Charles the Emperor. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from Sea Change Initiative, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. For more information about our guest, check the show notes for more links and resources. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.